from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, we have a three-part show with Ohioana Book Festival authors, Raymond Gerler, David Myers, and Paul Bauer, talking to OSU student Joe Frazier. Enjoy. I'm Joseph Frazier, and we are here at the Ohioana Book Festival, and I'm here with David Myers, the author of Look to Lazarus, Historic Columbus Crimes, and Ohio Jazz Music? Ohio Jazz. Ohio Jazz. So let's talk about Look to Lazarus. Okay. And why don't you tell me a little bit about the book? Uh, Look to Lazarus is a, a book that I didn't seek out. My editor asked me if I'd consider writing a history of Lazarus. And I thought about it for a few minutes, and uh, my only real condition was I wanted to get the approval of Robert Lazarus, who's the last surviving member of the Lazarus dynasty. And so I arranged a, a lunch with him, and he was uh, wholeheartedly in favor of, and of my doing it and provided me with some materials I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. So it was one of those things where I didn't know the subject before I started into it. And uh, as I got deeper and deeper into it, I discovered that the history of Lazarus is essentially the history of Columbus. And uh, it stems from the fact that the store was an institution here for 150 years. And it grew up as Columbus grew up. And in a lot of ways, it shaped the development of Columbus. So how, how have things changed in downtown since it closed? Since it closed? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot less life in downtown. I mean, that's what they're trying to restore now. Uh, it used to be, you know, d- during the golden era, which was probably the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, Lazarus was open until you know, 9 in the evening. And when Lazarus was open, everything else was open, too. It was just such a, a, a magnet for the entire population. And, you know, it generated excitement. That's one of the roles that the Lazarus store saw itself uh, in, was uh, they wanted to have 50 to 100 events going on in the store every day just to attract people there. And uh, the whole intent was to draw people downtown. That's why they built parking garages. That's why they loaned their planners to help design the interstate system, because they wanted to ensure that people could get to downtown Columbus within 20 minutes. And uh, so they shaped the growth of Columbus in ways that I think most people don't appreciate. And to me, it sounds like doing the research might have been the most interesting part of the process. Yeah, because we basically signed the contract and had six months to produce a book. Wow. And that included researching the history of it, you know, reading a lot of articles and newspaper articles, that type of thing, uh, digging out photographs, finding, locating photographs that we could use, and also interviewing people. I mean, that was one of the key things, is finding people that had worked at the store and uh, get their you know, recollections of, of you know, what was like working at Lazarus. And, and what comes through, not only from employees, but from patrons of Lazarus, is everybody loved Lazarus, and I, we didn't hear one negative thing said about Lazarus by anybody, and you know, that's that's unheard of, and it's because they were so dedicated to customer service and ensuring you know the, the sale wasn't finished you know ever it was you know the customer had to be satisfied, and uh, it's a, a whole way of approaching retailing that's kind of disappeared. So does the book just chronicle the history of the founding of the store? It actually, we started the book, um, my daughter Elise and my wife Beverly both assisted on the book, 
And we start at 1800 with the Napoleonic War. Wow. And the reason is I wanted to kind of chronicle the development of the ready-to-wear clothing industry. And up to Napoleonic Wars, you know, everything was kind of custom-tailored. It was A garment was made with a particular person in mind. You know, it was either made by the, the mother, you know, working at home or by, a, you know, a, a seamstress who did something for that specific purpose. But when the Napoleonic Wars started, you were conscripting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people into the army, and they needed uniforms. And so you had some, you know, kind of pioneering brokers who would arrange for a, a group of seamstresses to just crank out shirts and pants and vests and coats. And they didn't have any sizes. There weren't any standardized sizes. So they just made whatever they wanted to make. And then you would, you know, fit it to the person kind of by trial and error. But that was kind of the beginnings of the ready-to-made, to, to wear clothing industry. And so the Lazarus family arrived in Columbus in, in around 1850. And by 1851 had a store, but it was really the Civil War that launched them as, as clothiers, and it's because they were early adopters of the ready-to-wear clothing model, and uh, Simon Lazarus, the one who started the store, actually took a wagon at, toward the end of the Civil War and went all the way to Rochester, New York, purchased 200 ready-to-wear suits and brought them back. And as Civil War soldiers were being mustered out, they would come in, strip off their uniforms in the store, and put on this ready-to-wear uh, <laughs> outfit that they'd purchased. And it's because in the Civil War, when you were measuring all these different soldiers, the United States government actually published a list of the sizes. And so that was the first time you really had any standardized data on the male population to show what kind of sizes people wore. And so that really gave impetus to the ready-to-wear clothing industry, along with the invention of the sewing machine, which occurred about the same time. And the, the two other books you're here with are Historic Columbus Crimes and Ohio Jazz. Yes. And so is, is there a thread that runs through these three? Um, they, <laughs> they all are my interests. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, ultimately all books are uh, about the author. Okay. And the reason, the crimes, uh, I worked for in corrections for 30 years. Okay. So crimes was kind of a natural area for me to get into. And I had written an earlier book, my daughter and I, uh, Central Ohio's Historic Prisons, based on my experiences working in prisons and, and information I collected. And when I was contacted by the history press and asked to submit a book proposal to them, it was easy to, to cobble together stuff we had left out of the previous book to focus on crimes in Columbus. So we wrote a book that basically uh, chronicles 16 different crimes that occurred in Columbus from 1839 to 2004. And it's kind of a window into what life was like in various eras. And that's what we liked about them. Is, you know, it shows you how much people are alike and how people are different across time. What do you mean by how people are different? Well, you know, well, it's it's you know the, the passions and things are still the same, but it's you know we don't worry about people robbing streetcars anymore. You know, <laughs> it was you know we don't have people generally escaping from the scene of the crime on a bicycle. Uh, that's how things have changed. You know, we don't have a lot of body snatching going on because 
we have ways of procuring cadavers for medical schools, and they don't have to go out and steal them anymore. Uh, so, in some ways, you know, people are alike, but but the times have changed, and, and so that shapes behavior. And then the newest book you have with you, yes, is Ohio uh, Jazz. Ohio Jazz: A History of Jazz in the Buckeye State, which just came out this past week. Um, this goes back to I've had a long-standing interest in local music, and have basically compiled. Uh, a 4,000 page manuscript on music in central Ohio. Wow. Well, I, I have uh, some friends. We worked on another book called Columbus, the Musical Crossroads. And we had also worked on a, an exhibition at the Ohio Historical Society. And that was more oriented towards jazz throughout Ohio. And so there's been kind of a long standing wish to do something with the materials we gathered for that exhibition. And so we pushed ahead and did a book about jazz in Ohio, just focusing on jazz rather than all types of music. And it starts from, you know, it's, it's basically a history of music in the 20th century, because that's jazz started just before the beginning of the 20th century, and has continued since then. But it, it's interesting to look at the evolution. And what we wanted to highlight is the role, that the, the often uh, unacknowledged role that Ohio has played in the development of jazz. What kind of role is that? It was there from the beginning. I know, it, you know, jazz was born in New Orleans. It's not, you know, no one will dispute that. But the types of music that they drew from were already, you know, dispersed throughout the country. And it quickly spread into areas, you know, like Ohio, spread along, you know, the Mississippi and up the Ohio River and into our, you know, Cincinnati in particular. But we were did a lot of you know ragtime is kind of a precursor to jazz, and there's a lot of ragtime musicians from Ohio, ragtime composers from Ohio, and a lot of the you know the really great stuff <laughs> came from Ohio. But people you know people know Scott Joplin, they don't know any other ragtime composers, but there were a lot of good ones, and a lot of them came from Ohio, and it just developed from there. Uh, we've got a, a chapter on. Wilberforce College, and it's because of its importance as a kind of an incubator for jazz music. Uh, they didn't have a jazz program. In fact, they would have frowned upon jazz. But the you know the, it was the African American who were attending there, which you know, was one of the few colleges that they could attend, uh, were early adopters of the music and innovators. And a lot of really great musicians came out of that setting. Well, it sounds like three really interesting locally tied books. And the books are Ohio Jazz, Historic Columbus Crimes, and Look to Lazarus. David Myers, thanks for being here. Thank you. That was Ohio writer David Myers talking to OSU student Joe Frazier about his books at this year's 2012 Ohioana Book Festival. And now, Writer's Talk continues with Paul Bauer. I'm Joseph Frazier, and I am here with Paul Bauer, who is the author of Jim Tully, American Writer, Irish Rover, and Hollywood Brawler. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So this sounds like a really great read. I mean, this guy sounds like he's lived quite the life. Well, he really lived several lives. He was born in Western Ohio uh, to a very poor family. Uh, they were Irish immigrants. Uh, his father and grandfather were ditch diggers. They were working clearing the water uh, for the canals that were in that part of the state. 
and his mother died when he was six, and he was sent to the orphanage in Cincinnati for six years. And then uh, when he finally got out of the orphanage, he, uh, he hit the road. He grabbed a boxcar, and he rode the rails for six years. Uh, when he finally uh, came off the rails uh, in Kent, Ohio, uh, he worked as a boxer, he worked as a tree surgeon, and he, uh, he had this crazy idea that uh, he should write. And he was encouraged by his sister and the local librarian in Kent, and he began a, uh, a long writing career. And how did you, why did you want to write this book? Well, I, uh, I'm a, uh, a bookseller, and someone came into my shop back in the early 90s and asked for a copy of uh, Jim Tully's boxing novel. And I had not heard of the novel, and I hadn't heard of Jim Tully. And I was really surprised when this fellow said, well, you know, he was considered the father of hard-boiled fiction. You know, before Hammett, before Hemingway, uh, he was there with these short staccato sentences, and he was writing about the American underclass, uh, the people that John Steinbeck would write about. So I was, you know, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of this guy. And then he said, oh, and by the way, he began his writing career, you know, a couple blocks from here. And I was pretty mortified, uh, called my friend Mark Dewidziak, who was then at the uh, Akron Beacon Journal, and uh, Mark hadn't heard of him either. And we were both uh, just so intrigued by that, that Mark and I began over a period of many, many years uh, putting information together on, uh, on Jim Tully and gradually uh, doing the book. And so by reading Jim Tully's, uh, the writing style, the staccato writing style mm-hmm. that you mentioned, did you find that affecting how you're writing this book yourself? Well, I think, no, not really. And, and, and Tully, uh, I think one of the things that was so appealing to us, he had this wonderful Irish sort of lyricism. His grandfather who was a great storyteller, so he had that quality to it. And there were really some just beautiful uh, descriptive scenes in the books. And then he would shift back to this hard-boiled style. And it's, it's, it's not jarring at all. It really... They really complement each other so well. Uh, I don't know that it really affected our, our writing style so much. I mean, we're certainly a, a fan of his work, but uh, I, we certainly didn't consciously try and imitate it anyway. Sure. And tell me a little bit about the kind of research that you had to do to put this together. Well, we uh, located his personal papers uh, at UCLA in Special Collections, and uh, they when we visited Special Collections... Uh, in the early 90s, these hundred-some boxes of papers had been untouched. Uh, and we spent uh, parts of several summers out there going through all this uh, material. And it was just an amazing treasure trove of both uh, Hollywood history, uh, particularly of Hollywood's golden age, uh, literary history, uh, boxing history. It was just an amazing resource. And we ended up with uh, a database that numbers over 3,000 items. And so we, that was the basis of then writing the book, was to get this all organized and put into a narrative. Uh, he had a uh, sort of a two-track writing career. He was the first writer uh, to cover Hollywood. He had worked for Charlie Chaplin. He was the first writer to cover Hollywood who was independent of the studios and, and freelance about it, which meant he could write about Hollywood honestly. 
uh, and not always uh, putting Hollywood and the stars in uh, good light. Uh, but he had many friends in Hollywood, so he had this uh, sort of popular side. I mean, these things were in Photoplay and other Hollywood fan magazines, and that made him a lot of money. Uh, but more interesting, I think, to me anyway, and I think I would say for my partner, uh, were the books he was writing about the road and what America was really like. This is before the Dust Bowl, so he is he's really sort of followed Jack London. In fact, London was one of his early idols. They met, uh, and he was writing about uh, a side of America that uh, uh, you just don't see. In the uh, foreword for this, uh, Ken Burns writes that this uh-huh. is an America that we sort of suspect was out there, but we really didn't know too much about. Nobody was really chronicling it. Uh, as an example, uh, one of Tully's friends, he was uh, admired and was friendly with F. Scott Fitzgerald. And while Fitzgerald was writing about these lavish parties in New York, uh, and I love you know, Fitzgerald, Tully was looking at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, and it's really intriguing to me. From your research, did you get a sense of which, which one of the two lives Tully preferred living himself? Did he feel torn between kind of this, you know, living in Hollywood during the, the golden era of film or maybe riding the streetcars when he was a kid? Well, he, he often said that he, he, he liked writing about Hollywood because uh, when during his road years, he worked for a circus and he worked with carties. In fact, one of his books is about sort of circus life, the dark side of circus life. And he said, you know, I, I think I'm attracted to Hollywood because I spent so much time at the circus. <laughs> so he, he really, uh, uh, I don't know that he preferred one. Uh, certainly I think he thought his reputation would be based on uh, these memoirs and autobiographical novels uh, and not on the Hollywood stuff. But the Hollywood stuff is very interesting because it's, it's a period when uh, most of what is out there were, were, was the work of studio publicists, which he was not. Okay. And it sounds like I mean, this just sounds like a great read. Uh, Jim Tully, American writer, Irish rover, Hollywood brawler. Thank you for being here, Paul Bauer. Thank you, Joe. Thanks. That was Ohio writer Paul Bauer talking to OSU student Joe Frazier. More information on Paul Bauer and our other guests can be found at www.writerstalk.org. And for today's third and final act on Writers Talk... Joe Frazier interviews Raymond Gurler at the 2012 Ohioana Book Festival. I'm Joseph Frazier, and I'm here with Raymond Gurler, who is the author of the Ohio State University in Illustrated History. So tell me a little bit about this book, what's inside of it. Well, this is the first one-volume history of the university since 1952. It spans the period 1870 to uh, 2010. Uh, it's intended for the general audience. It is uh, topical in arrangement. It is uh, heavily illustrated. There are approximately 300 uh, photographs, uh, and it hopefully will provide uh, everything that uh, uh, most people define as uh, alumni, students, uh, faculty uh, about the university that they uh, wish to know, uh, everything ranging from the beginnings of campus 
to uh, the uh, physical uh, campus. I have two chapters, uh, one, one on the uh, historic buildings, another on the whole uh, planning process from when the university uh, began from, uh, from an old farm, the Neal Farm. To, uh, to the present, and there's a chapter also on athletics, which is uh, different uh, from uh, other uh, histories of uh, athletics. I was less concerned about uh, uh, great teams, uh, uh, great coaches, great players. That's already been done. I was more interested in why athletics became such a huge part of the university life. There's also a separate treatment of uh, women's athletics, uh, which uh, had a different course. Uh, in uh, Ohio State University history, up until the uh, the 1950s, uh, uh, women's athletics uh, was basically participatory rather than competitive. Uh, in fact, some sports, women's sports, they didn't even offer trophies. Uh, so uh, all that changed as uh, women began uh, challenging uh, stereotypes. Uh, and uh, uh, and in the 1960s and 70s, uh, we had uh, rapid change uh, for, uh, in uh, in women's athletics. So why was uh, or why were athletics? How did it become such a huge part of the university? Well, uh, it became a, a huge part. Uh, uh, Largely because we, uh, partly because we had, aside from good teams, uh, we had presidential leadership that uh, supported. Um, we had a, uh, a stadium, uh, the Ohio Stadium, that was a, a landmark. In fact, it's one of our historic buildings. And in the process, and it was our first fund, major fundraising effort. Mm. And the, uh, the president, President William Oxley Thompson, was uh, 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 in the forefront of raising money for the building. His successor, um, George Reitmeyer, uh, was, uh, uh, before he became president, he was the university's uh, faculty representative uh, leading the committee that uh, uh, had the university join the Big Ten. So, uh, and of course, we also had uh, consistent. We had quite a bit of longevity in athletic directors in that uh, uh, period. And we also had uh, faculty with a vision. Uh, uh, Thomas French in uh, engineering was for decades uh, the uh, champion of uh, athletics on the campus. So, uh, uh, some skeptics, but also a, uh, uh, a great uh, leadership in uh, in developing university athletics. And so this book examines um, all of Ohio State's history. So what is the time span that we're looking at here? Well, the time span covers from uh, 1870 when we were chartered okay. uh, up till uh, early 2010. I think the last entry I was able to squeeze uh, in before uh, uh, the publishing phase was the, uh, uh, the New Ohio Union. Okay. Uh, probably the most difficult chapter was I have a chapter on uh, people of Ohio State, uh, and uh, you know we have uh, uh, between four and five hundred thousand graduates. So uh, how do you narrow that down to uh, to twenty five? Yeah, uh, that took uh, uh, years of uh, uh, of effort to uh, to do that. But uh, after all, the university needs to be measured uh, not only by uh, uh, its uh, um, uh, its its athletic programs, its academic programs, but also the people that it graduates who have a greater influence on society. And this is uh, an illustrated history, 
And is it right that the archives, the university archives, has a million photographs? Uh, uh, like that? Actually, you're understating the case. <laughs> uh, we have approximately a million and a half uh, uh, photographs. We don't spend a great deal of uh, uh, time counting, uh, but we are probably the largest source of uh, single institution, single college university uh, photographs in the country. Uh, we had a, a very, we were one of the earliest ones to teach photography on campus, and the university archives uh, inherited a huge collection from what used to be the Department of Photography and Cinema that provided uh, photographic services for the entire campus. Was there a um, time period where uh, the archives really saw, saw an uptick in the collection? Or when did they really start focusing? Well, even though the university began in 1870, the archives really didn't begin until uh, the mid-1960s. Okay. Uh, that was a time when uh, many universities were either celebrating or facing their uh, 100th year uh, anniversary. And uh, uh, that uh, we had a professor, James Pollard, who did in fact write the first uh, one-volume history of OSU, uh, which ends in, which was published in 1952. He was the force uh, behind uh, creating the university archives and hiring the first archivist. His, his last position, uh, official position, was university historian. How do you uh, how do you even comb through a million and a half photographs to arrive? How, do you know how many photographs are in the book? Uh, roughly 300. Okay. Uh, and uh, having worked at the university archives and been university archivist for 32 years, I had a pretty good sense of the uh, photographic resources. And uh, our staff at university archives was also uh, very helpful. So uh, it really wasn't that difficult to, uh, to pull all the photographs together. Do you have a favorite photograph or a favorite before and after? Uh, well, actually, there's one photograph in there that one of my uh, uh, colleagues in reviewing the book uh, uh, suggested I take out, and I uh, uh, said, no, I like that photograph too much. It was a photograph of the uh, uh, 1970 uh, uh, occupation of campus by the National Guard, and there's uh, one woman uh, who is wearing sunglasses, I guess she couldn't be identified, uh, but she is uh, giving a uh, one-finger salute to the, uh, 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 to the National Guard. Yeah. Um, and is there any uh, story you think that really jumped out at you that um, the larger Ohio State community might not be aware of? Uh, well, certainly one of the great mysteries of the campus, uh, in volume one of university history, uh, there was a uh, celebration of the Heisel Act. Uh, the Heisel Act provided the first annual university uh, subsidy from the state of Ohio. It was revolutionary because the state did not have any uh, history of supporting higher education, aside from chartering institutions. And the Heisel Act was monumental in the, uh, uh, in the financing of the, uh, the university. And uh, that, that volume one of university history um, uh, claims that, that at a celebration, a professor said that the uh, name of Heisel shall live forever on the campus. Well, you won't find a Heisel Park, uh, a Heisel <laughs> building, or a Heisel street. But nevertheless, uh, uh, Heisel is uh, pretty important in the history of the university. In fact, that I identified as one of the turning points in the, the history of the university there. I identified five. Uh, turning points defined as uh, actions or events that accelerated the pace of change, and the Heisel Act, in my opinion, was one. What was what were the other four? Uh, well, the other ones uh, uh, included the uh, uh, 
the healing of the rift with agriculture when mm -hmm. the when agriculture was dropped from the university's uh, name in 1878 and it became the Ohio State University. Previously, we were known as the Ohio uh, Agricultural and Mechanical College. Uh, the ag community, which is a pretty powerful constituency, was very upset. And a former U.S. president and then trustee Rutherford B. Hayes uh, perform, uh, performed uh, heroic work in healing that uh, rift. Uh, the uh, uh, the third uh, was really uh, uh, World War II, uh, which uh, created so much in the way of uh, research and international aspects, as well as uh, a huge uh, enrollment boost uh, because of the uh, uh, GI Bill. Uh, the, uh, the the next one that I identify, of course, is the. Uh, uh, 1970 student disturbances, uh, which has had a lingering uh, effect, positive effect, in the sense of more participation of student government in student government in, in university government that had not been uh, the history of our institution uh, previously, and the final one uh, being uh, selective admissions, because until then we were an open admission school, as one university president, uh, President Jennings, said, uh, until selective admissions, it was really the uh, uh, the U.S. Post Office that was uh, deciding university admissions because if you were a high school graduate from Ohio State, if you got your admission early enough, uh, had it properly stamped, etc., uh, you got in. <laughs> uh, so uh, and th that uh, meant uh, significant changes to uh, uh, the quality of our uh, students uh, and uh, the uh, uh, national stature, if you will, of the university itself. Well, the book is The Ohio State University, an Illustrated History. It sounds like really a must-have for anyone who's come in contact with the university. Oh, thank you. Uh, Raymond Gurler, I appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Special thanks to my guests, David Myers, Raymond Gurler, and Paul Bauer, along with guest interviewer, OSU student Joe Frazier. More information can be found about our guests at www.writerstalk.org. Also, you can follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash writerstalk. Join us next time for more Ohio Anna Book Festival authors with Donna McMeans and Cinda Williams-Chima. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.